John, welcome to Sports Editor. It's really good to have you on the show. Thanks for chatting to us all the way in Toronto, Canada. It's really good to have you for your time. Thanks so much, John. John, you know, your, your career started off whilst you were at school. Um, and, you know, in your beginning years, how, how did you handle that pressure? Was it, you know, quite interesting for you? Was it a bit tough at times, especially, you know, being like a schoolboy, you know, things, I would say, some important matches? Um, yeah, I don't, I, they were important because they were important for the people they were playing. I, I don't know how important <laughs> they were for the bigger rugby public. But you've you, you got to start somewhere. So, um, you know, I was happy with that soft landing. Um, Yaron, I, I, I don't know whether it's my character or whether it was my approach, but I never really, I often never felt pressure oh. and I never felt it in the beginning and I never felt it, you know, right at the end as well, or, or when I was at the top of the tree. So, um, I mean, you know, it's nonsense to say people don't get butterflies or nerves because you get them. Because, because of the burden of responsibility, because yeah. of your own ambition, yeah. uh, because of the unexpected. You know, you prepare well, but you think like hmm, something could happen. And, you know, it's different for, for the players because the players obviously get deified by the public and the press and the referees sometimes get vilified. Um, and, and also in the referee space, there's, there's no one really to cover for you because, you know, you're on your own. Whereas in a team environment, you miss a tackle, somebody else can can cover you yeah. make a bad decision and then the decision sticks so I'm, I'm probably just lucky that i've got that kind of disposition um i mean i i think i'm probably poor in, in other respects but in that respect i've got you know i've got some good <laughs> excellent no, i think you've got a lot of good and yeah you your your name in the rugby was brilliant but you were appointed onto the essay panel in in 1993 and you served for many years you did a brilliant job was it a bit of sort of be in the moment experience for you when you got that call up onto the SA panel? Um, you know, in in those days, I, I went through the curve of what needed to be done in order to get there. And so I refereed two, two years in the fourth division, two years in the third division, two years in oh. second. And then on, only in my seventh year did I get to first division club rugby. And then it took a couple of years before I went on an exchange game. And I did well in my exchange games in in '92, uh, I think it was, and and basically on the back of that, I got, you know, I got to be on the panels, and the panel is really where you need to be in order to climb some sort of ladder because it doesn't matter if you're doing well in Velcom, but nobody's <laughs> looking at you, so no disrespect to Velcom across any city, but yeah, yeah, so so. You know, for me, it, that that was a big, big thing to get on the panels, and I and I did wait a long time. It just shows you how also how the world has changed because nowadays, you know, referees are are trained up within two or three years. So you get these ex players that have a a better understanding of the game. You can literally train if if they're um, prepared to work hard. You can train them up in two to three years. And there's been quite a few success stories. You know, the Glenn Jacksons, Nick Berry, yeah. Carl Dixon. Um, you know, we had Egon Seconds. I know, I know he's, he's no longer there, but, you know, he was, I think he did very well. Mm. And, and, and so that's, that's one of the pathways that's, that the world is going on at the moment. And I, th I think it's a good pathway. You know, I, I do think that I, I was, I had to do more to get to the same level because I hadn't played at the highest level. So I had to almost learn on the job, whereas some of these guys already know what, 
you know, how the, how the game is played yeah. at that elite level and, and, you know, what to look for. So, um, so I think, I think that is a good policy. Excellent. Very, very interesting, John. Very interesting. Uh, but it's, for me, it's always nice when someone has worked their way up. It just, to me, it feels more rewarding in a sense. But I, I yes, hear you so, so that, No, no, totally. So, that, so we, can, we can just take on to that for a second. So um, I always said that, w- and, and I never had any doubt in my mind that I'd make it, um, as arrogant as that sounds. Um, I always said that when I made it, it would be sweeter for me. Yeah. Because I'd I'd done the hard yards, mm. um, you know I'd uh, I'd resisted being um, I was almost like a square square you know trying to put a square peg in a round hole yeah or, or vice versa um, and I'd resisted that type of overture so um, I, I didn't get any I don't I mean I couldn't have done it on my own so obviously I did get support but I don't think I went out of my way to curry favour with administrators to be able to get um, a leg up and and it was sweeter you know I worked hard for it and when I got it it was it was fantastic and that is one of the things that that I don't think that some of the referees today get is they haven't got enough scars and so what you've got to do actually is you've got to get more scars as you're going through the ranks in the early days because you don't want them in the big games and you know when you're refing on the world stage yeah and and sometimes my feeling is that Referees are rushed into a space uh, because of the promise of youth. The promise of youth doesn't translate into anything. It's just the promise of youth. Whereas you've got some people who are actually functional, experienced, but just because they're getting to an aging stage, um, you know, they're put out to pasture. And that's probably um, how my career, you know, how my professional career ended as well, is that, you know, I got to an age and then the age became the determinant of whether I should stay or go rather than... Mm you know, whether my ability was, was uh, helpful for the rugby that I was refereeing. Yes. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I totally understand. So, yeah, I could have carried on for another 10 years, let's say. Yes. Operating at that level, maybe not being number one in everyone's eyes, and that's okay. But, you know, there was never this type of um, arrangement. It was always you reach an age and then it was like, yeah, we've got to find an exit somehow. And is this the year? And then it was like, no, it's not this year. Okay, well, it, it's going to probably be next year. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> well, I totally, and I hear what you're saying, because often it's sort of, fortunately, he's a young guy, like you said, put him in. But that experience of taking his knocks, and like you said earlier, you were division, the fourth division. So that's proper. You, you've done your, your, your time, so to say. So, <laughs> yeah. I agree with you, John. I really, really do. But you, you hold the, the surfing record for the most appearances at a, at a World Cup. Um, sorry, Rugby World Cups, sorry, as a, as a ref. And was that something that was considered probably as the highlight of your career and something that other refs should try to aim at? No, I, I, look, I hold a number of longevity records. Mm. Um, you know, like, so I was the most capped international referee uh, in the history of the game. It subsequently passed by uh, Nigel and I think Wayne Barnes and many others, you know, many others will come through eventually because there's a proliferation of games. Um, same with Curry Cup, same with Super Rugby. You know, I was the first Super Rugby to get 100 games. I was the first Test Ref to get 50. So all these things, they're, they're there because I stuck around because I was operating at that level for that length of time. Um, I was very proud that I went to four World Cups. Um, I was probably a bit unlucky that I didn't get a final. Mm. But but also but also you know I don't think 
careers are defined by, by that particular moment. Um, I would have loved to have done one, but it, it wasn't meant to be. So, you know, I, I did, uh, I think it was 13 World Cup games. And, and each one of those was special. You know, World Cup games, they're, not, they're often not, um, let's say, a Bledisloe Cup game between two hot teams that, that play, you know, razzmatazz, rock and roll kind of rugby. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're refing minnows. But those, yeah. those games taught me a lot as well, you know. Okay. Like sometimes I pushed the envelope to try and get a better game. And then the, the skill set wasn't, you know, coming back at me. So then I realized, okay, I'm, I'm pushing too hard. Um, you know, it is what it is. I've got to ref what's in front of me and not push too hard with the certain management cues that I used to use to try and get a game right. uh, rolling. Right. Mm. Um, but, but, and that was good. There was a good, a good learning curve for me. You know, it didn't matter that it was a smaller game with between two teams that were, that weren't going to get past the pool stages. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen some cracker games, but when I get back to that a bit later, John, but I just want to ask you, um, because you were awarded referee of the year five times in South Africa. Was that sort of like a goal of yours to achieve that? Or was it just because you were meticulous and as we've mentioned before, you just worked jolly hard? No, I, I didn't I didn't do anything for awards. In fact, um I'm probably the least appreciative person when these type of things come because um I am poker faced, I'm you know, I'm I'm straight laced. I don't I, I appreciate it, but I'm not gonna wrap my legs around you, you know, to say, you know, big hugs to say thanks. Because, <laughs> you know, these, these, these things are, they're often, it's, it's a decision made. You know, I'll just say that in, in that, in that case with those awards, um, I don't think often it was necessarily the referee who performed best in the year. Sometimes, you know, it, I think it was, it was by committee decision on, on maybe who's referee, who, who performed the best in the big games. Right. Maybe it was the guy who did the most test matches. Maybe it was, um, you, you know, the most improved ref at the elite level. So I, I don't really pay much uh, attention to that. I, I know I put it on my CV because it's a nice thing to put in writing because other people think it's, it's noteworthy. But I'm, I'm probably much more proud of the fact that I was operating at the elite level you know, my test career was just under 17 years. And that was, that was very important to me because what it meant is that my customers, the, the players and the coaches and administrators, my primary customers were, were happy with me doing what I was doing. And so that, that says a lot more than, you know, an award, which sometimes, um, you know, has a different type of feel to it. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. So a good, long, consistent career is probably the, your highest achievement, like you said, that it makes you feel good. So it's, that's excellent. But John, you, you must have heard one or two funny chirps at, at the breakdown or a scrum time. Could you share one with us or even in, in open play? Or... Um, I think, I think the one which burned the most, uh, you know, I, know, I know this is a generation back, but yes. um, you know, George Gregan was a, was a feisty character oh, yes. oh. And, and he had a, and, and yes, he was given license cause he was the captain and he was an experienced player, but he also had this, I suppose this way of getting under uh, on people's nerves or getting under their skin. <laughs> and, and he did that with many referees as well. And I think most of the time it served him well. It's a bit like uh, in the late nineties, this guy, Kevin Putt was accused of the same thing um, and, and various and various others as well. I'm just, I'm just using a couple of names. 
Um, and I think for the most part, these are, these are competitive people that are pushing the envelope to mm. try and get the best for their teams. Mm. And I think, you know, 80-20 principle, I think for the most part, they do actually do well for their teams. There, there are occasions when it blows up in their face. And the one incident, incident was that I can remember with George in particular was that he, I, I was refing Australia, New Zealand in Australia at the Olympic stadium. And uh, George came, uh, Carlos Spencer went off sides a couple of times at once right under the sticks. And it was, you know, I wasn't certain that it was um, deliberate. So what they were doing, they were doing a hard press from the, from the fly half, from the pillar post and 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 he was offsides twice so it could be his timing it could be that he was keen to you know to make a a big difference to make it a big hit and it could be also be that it was deliberate to shut down the space and not give you know make the the australian backs hit them behind the game line so anyway i I made a decision that i was going to give a warning but he kept george kept shouting at me yellow card yellow card and and i've got a terrible australian accent so (laughs) Um, so I said, George, George, I've got it. Let me make the decision. Anyway, I, kept, I walked towards it. it was Tano Munga, I think, and, and Carlos Spencer just to give them the team warning and to give Carlos Spencer his warning. And, and George kept at me. And I said, George, I've got it. Please, you've got to, you've got to leave this. And, and I did want to make sure that Australia got some purchase out of it because mm-hmm. they deserved it. But he kept, he didn't let up. He kept going at me. And so I turned the penalty around. And I turned it around because if I didn't turn it around, I would have had trouble for the whole game Yes. because I would have lost respect. Yes. You know, I would have lost credibility that I'm allowing him to yeah. um, have a go at me every time he disagrees. Anyway, I still warned Spencer and, and, um, and New Zealand kicked the ball out on the halfway line and George comes up to me and gives me a slap on the bum and says, okay, Jonathan, I'm, I'm calm and rational now. <laughs> and, 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 and for the rest of the game, um, you know, he did his normal thing, but he he realized that he had overstepped the mark and he didn't want me to feel like, you know, and, and it was just, I suppose it's, it was just a, a mildly humorous moment in a, in a very um, hot test match. You know, the, the final score was 1918. It was, it was sure. very well contested and, yeah. you know, Australia got over the line, but it could have gone either way. <laughs> it could have. I, I don't know if you've watched recently, the lot, you know, the, the match, the test that took place when there was 16 all draw. It was a jolly good game. Um, but now South Africa have pulled out the rugby championship. And I know we're talking about refereeing, but just briefly, your thoughts on that? Because they're basically saying we're not going to be fit, you know, but we won the rugby championship last year. I don't know, John, yeah. has it been a good idea just to step away for a year and catch a bit of a breather? No, I, I, um, I don't really think that, you know, preparation was, a, was the major factor. You know, if we were going to lose games, we were going to lose games. Um, I think, you know, if we were wholly underprepared, in other words, if New Zealand and Australia had four to six weeks to prepare and we had one week to prepare, you know, we would have been under the pump. I don't think we had one week to prepare. I think there were other factors that came into play, maybe mm. the quarantining, you know, there's the, a the couple have been mentioned by Jacques, you know, but in the, in the press. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a tough call. I, I do think that the money that would have been generated would have been very helpful for Saru. Uh, you know, to be able to pay the players and, mm-hmm. and move forward. Um, but they've obviously made a decision in the best interest of everyone. And, and I'm sure that they would have liked to have gone uh, to, you know, to be there as defending world champions. And, and you know, it's, it's, 
if you think about it, it has been a year with with nothing, you know, with nothing for these world champions to yeah. be able to say, look, we're we're the world champions and we're defend, you know, defending our space, not necessarily the title yet, but the space as the best in the world. So I think, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, because it looks like no test rugby for South Africa all this year, but let's look forward to next year, British and Irish Lions and all of that. So it'll, it'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But going, going back to refereeing, John, um, you know, it, it's always a tough one when you get those 50-50 calls and you always get people who are, or TV refs and say, oh, I should always go this way or that way. Yeah. Is there ever a moment where you sort of feel flip, man? I should have perhaps gone that route or made that decision. How do you deal with those 50 50 calls when it is really tight and you just got to say, you know what, I'm making a decision and I'm going to stick with it? Easy to do once you, you've been around for a few, few games? Um, no, I think this is something that you've got to prepare for when you're, when you're starting out. You know, that you're going to make unpopular calls, that it's going to be very difficult to um, get the credibility back sometimes when, you're, when you've done one of those bad calls. I mean, it happened to me in a test match. You know, my, my biggest mistake, I think, in a, in a test match was, you know, in an important Six Nations game uh, where uh, a quick throw was taken. And it, was it a quick throw? Or was it a quick line out? Because they've got two different sets of laws attached to them. I didn't have a TMO facility to review um the, the the AR at the time uh, probably wasn't concentrating. Uh, you know, I was complicit in a poor decision and the game was close. You know, the final score was close, which makes a big difference because if you make a bad decision and the score is 40-10, uh, you know, yeah. people go like, oh, you know, it was a bad decision, but, you know, we can move on. We yes. can move on much easier. Um, yeah, so, and, and, and for 25 minutes, I, I knew in the second half, I knew that I, that I'd made a, you know, bad decision, but I had to stick to my guns and I had to uh, referee what was in front of me rather than try and correct, you know, the mistake that I've made. And that's got to, that, and that lives with you. You know, it's like, it's all players make mistakes. And, you know, sometimes, like I said, they're covered for by, by, by their teammates and other times not. And in, in this particular case, you know, I didn't have many uh, blow ups, but this was one of them. And, and I was, uh, you know, it's something that's, that I wish never had happened. But the truth is that every top referee who, who was around, perhaps they didn't get around to be as for, you know, around for as long as I was, but for around for a sustained period of time, will have moments where they regret things that they did and the, and the game didn't work out uh, well, I suppose. Yeah. No, that's true. But you, you're like, I think you're a testament to just keep going, just keep going, just keep going because it's, it's going to happen where someone's going to be grumpy with you along the lines and you've just, you've handled it well. So it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we talk about possibly the best game you've refed and you could look at it, I think, two ways. Either where everything's gone well for you or where it's just been a brilliant showcase of rugby skills and talent. Which yeah. game really did you think back now and say, wow, that was a great game to ref? Um. So there were, there's 70 to choose from in the test match arena. And probably the best of those was my seventh test between Australia and New Zealand. I loved refereeing Bledisloe Cup rugby. Okay. Um, it was, you know, I could only ever ref Australia and New Zealand because I was South African. So in a Tri-Nations environment, there was only one game I could ever do. Um, but I loved refereeing you know, a fast-paced game with a high skill set mm. where players got on with the game and they didn't, generally they didn't moan. They, were, you know, they, were, they wanted to affect the result themselves. 
I think I prepared generally very well for most of them. Uh, often in, in, in those games, there was only a one-point score, a one, uh, one uh, score difference between the teams. And, and so they were good games. But the, be- the best of the lot was probably my first one between Australia and New Zealand where there was quite a dramatic twist at the end of the game in a game that actually was a very good game of rugby. Mm. Um, and, and I had to make a big, brave decision in New Zealand against New Zealand, you know, well into injury time. And, and I did it. It was the right decision. Australia ended up winning the game, the mantle of number one team in the world, the Tri-Nations uh, Trophy and the Bledisloe Cup based on that decision. So, you know, I think that that game allowed, sort of catapulted me into a different stratosphere where people said, okay, this guy can actually handle the very best games that we've got. And, and then I was given those games mm. from, from, that, from that day onwards. So, um, you know, I had Ed Morrison on touch for me, which was very helpful and, and calming because he was, you know, he was, he was helpful before the game. He was helpful during the game. And then in the aftermath of, you know, what was that decision for and, and why did you play so much injury time, that type of thing? Uh, you know, Ed was very positive in and around that space as well. Excellent to hear. Very, very good. Because you used the words there, prepare well, John. And, you know, with rugby, the rules seem to change quite a lot, especially, I think, to try and make it a faster game from what I can understand. How much time does a ref have to sort of right, get those new rules in or any changes? You know, do you have to learn it as soon as it comes up and have it ready to go? Or do they sort of prep you and say, look, here comes a change. Make sure you know what's happening. Um. No, I think I think it's up to the ref. I mean, I think preparation is a key element of of anything we do, and it doesn't matter whether there's new laws or or, or a new environment. It's it's the preparation is the key to the to the equation. So so um, if you, if you if there is a whole bunch of new stuff that you have to attend to, um, I don't think it's daunting. I think it's just a different. I, I'm not joking. One in one year. I think 2005, six, they were trying ELVs, you know, the experimental law variations. Sure. And they must have had, I must have been refing, I was refing Varsity Cup, Curry Cup, Super Rugby, Test Match Rugby, uh, and a couple of other club rugby. And, and each variety, each, um, each game had a different variety of laws. Wow. So I, I, was having, I was having to think on the run, on the hoof, under pressure of six different things that were happening in one calendar year. Uh, that that was challenging. That was challenging wow. because you because it's easy to make a mistake thinking, um, oh, the, you know, I should be doing this, but you're actually in the wrong competition. <laughs> yes. well, that's why I took my hat off to refs because it's not easy to remember all those rules, and especially when you get crunch games. Because I think of that time when Andre Jubey, no, Andre Jubey, Craig Jubey had that game with Australia and Scotland. I think it was in the semi final of all the rugby world cups. Man, it's difficult, but you've got to make a decision. So it's all yeah, good. yeah, and it just so that's what I was telling you. You know, Craig. Mm. Craig was a very good ref. He, he did similar um, numbers to me in um, in test matches. And he probably retired, in my opinion, a couple of years too early. Yeah, yeah. But, but he got to the point where he was attracting that probably that type of uh, attention in respect of a mistake here and a mistake there. Right. And to be honest with you, that, that decision that he made, which, which was wrong, was only wrong under the microscope. It's very easy to make that kind of mistake when you don't have uh, the facility of a replay. Similar mm. to my situation, similar to probably a, a lot of situations where, um, you know, you, you're looking at something and it appears a certain way on the field. But when you look at it in retrospect from a TV camera, you go like, hmm, I've actually made a mistake here. 
And Craig's Craig's mistake was, you know, obviously it came at a bad time at the end of a game or towards the end of a game. Um, you know, it was magnified, and and he was wrong, and he knows, and he knows he's wrong. I mean, I'm not saying anything out of line that yeah. he's, uh, you know, that he's a bad ref or anything. He was a great ref. He's, a, he's actually a personal friend. I mm. mentored him, you know, basically oh, wow. to get to the World Cup of 2011. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's 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 a pity, but it happens. Yes, no, it does happen. It does happen. But John, you know, refs, I believe, are already critical for the game of rugby, and it's always a, a tough one because you know there's there's always players, but refs are becoming hard to find. You know, especially like at a club level, things like that. What do you feel, sort of like a, a draw card to become a ref? What makes it like exciting to become a ref? No, no. Look, for me, it was just I wanted to stay involved. You know, I, I started very young. I, I, was, I was lucky that I started young because I had a, a then I had a very long international career and a long career. And I'm still reffing. You know, I'm still I'm into my 37th season. Um, admittedly, COVID, COVID affected, but um. You know, I'm still doing it. And, and I think for me, it was about getting involved. You know, I loved rugby, but I didn't like the training. I didn't want to be, um, you know, going to gym six times a week and building a body that could handle the, the pressure of the hits. Um, I liked using my, my head to be able to understand things in and around the game. And, you know, I was, I was a very average player, but I found my niche. And so, yeah. and, and so, you know, then other people recognized that I was good in that space. And so then it made me feel like, okay, well, I actually am contributing. I am, I am doing something for the benefit of the game. You've done, you've done a lot for the game, John. You never, never underestimate that. I believe that that's my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. John, so are you also a, a columnist now? And um, what brought you to engage in, in that aspect of things? Um, yeah, when I when I finished, I tried to get involved with super sport, and I was rebutted at every at every turn. And and the reason that I that I thought this was a good space for me is that I can speak reasonably well. You know, mm. I can highlight certain things to the public, uh, the salient points in and around good decisions, bad decisions, uh, grey decisions. And I think that that is a space that that is sorely needed, even even at the time when I retired, which was which was seven years ago. Um, but but you know for one or another reason I wasn't I wasn't welcomed you know I wasn't they they didn't they didn't want me the public wanted me like everybody said to me brilliant idea you need to you need to get into that space but for whatever reason um, SuperSport continually blocked me I mean I must have tried with them for the better part of three four years wow. to get involved and and help the South African public to find. Um, you know, it's a point of difference. You know, we, we get we get rugby programs. Some of them are fun. You know, you joke around with ex-players and it's nice to see their, um, I suppose, not their rugby side, the, the softer side of their mm-hmm. nature. And I think it was important from a, a, a match official perspective, not because, you know, we're a boring bunch or, or we want to be doing things right all the time. But, you know, there's a human side to us as well. And and we're also a part of the rugby family. And I don't think enough was enough attention was given to that. So, I think it's a pity, but it is what it is. Mm. Um, I started a, uh, I started a. Well, I didn't start it. Some other dude started, and then got me involved in in writing for a, a website called Rate the Ref, which was not okay. really. We, we weren't really rating the ref, but the, there was a lot of material. And and I remember on, on weekends, some of the traffic we used to get was in excess of of a million uh, people waiting for what was coming 
Yeah, it was it was big wow. traffic. Yeah, so and and then so but we couldn't attract a sponsor. And then I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to do this for nothing. Uh, some of some of my columns were uh, quite hard hitting, and I don't, you know, and I thought maybe it's it's probably a good time to retract from that. And I've I wrote for I wrote for basically all the South African publications, you know, SA Rugby, SA Sports, whatever the whatever it was. I wrote for most of the newspapers, and eventually, I you know, I now write for the Telegraph in London. Um, I've got a good relationship with them; they appreciate my work, and you know, I think I've I've tried to make sure that I the two things I've I've never done I've never said a referee was a bad referee. And I've never said somebody was a bad person. And I think those are the two important things. You know, if somebody makes a bad mistake, I own my bad mistakes. If yeah. someone says to me, did you do that? I say, yes, I did. You know, it's not the end of the world. You made a mistake. You're a human being. We all make mistakes. Yeah. You take a wrong turn. Uh, you, you dial the wrong number. You know, these type of things happen. Sometimes it happens on a rugby field. It's unfortunate. You know, it's not something you're proud of, but it happens. Yeah, it does. And sometimes it's, it's you know, it's very, you know, like I said, it's important in the context of a game and sometimes it's the same mistake but less important in the context of the game so you, you know that's why it's a bit luck of the draw true very very true but john you've also written a couple of books um but the one that i found quite interesting is called always believe in magic and um, could you tell us a bit about that yeah so I, when i when i retired in my last year i was thinking okay well i actually don't want my story to be written by anybody else i want i want to write my own story mm. And so I wrote, I wrote about uh, my career, my challenges, the good times, the bad times, the people I met, the cultures that I, that I found interesting, and a variety of other stories. And the book did very well. It was, it was called Call It Like It Is. And it's, it's, I suppose, significant because it's really my nature. Um, and then, and then, uh, I suppose about a year later, I was involved with UCT Rugby and we right. won the Varsity Cup in, in a dramatic fashion. In one of the, you know, what I believe is the greatest comeback in the history of rugby, sure. bar none, bar no game, uh, where we scored seven tries, oh, sorry, three tries in seven minutes to, in the final, in the final, to win um, a significant competition, which was the Varsity Cup. Mm. And, uh, and it was done, the storyline around it is just simply amazing. So, uh, we uh, there were three of us that wrote. I, I was pretty keen to make sure that 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 story got out. But I mean, by the way, you know, it's the most number of YouTube hits also in the history of South African sport was was in and around that game. Sure. Yeah. It, it, now it's well over two hundred thousand. But in that in those days, it was, I think it was about one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy thousand when we wrote the book. Sure. Yeah. So so then, and I wrote it with Professor Tim Noakes, who's okay. written three of the ten best-selling books ever in South Africa, I think. And I wrote it with a coach. Kevin Musicant. So we wrote it with three uh, with three different voices, and Kevin's job was to provide the bulk of the material because he was there most of the time. Um, Noakes's voice was to provide the technical expertise in and around how we were able to get over the line, how we transformed a bunch of uh, losers. I, I'm not saying this; they're not losers as people, yeah. not not as people, but they were losers on the rugby field. How how they were transformed from losers into winners, and then my job was to pull everything together to introduce, to pull, to sum, to sum up and, you know, ultimately to use my experience at the elite level to highlight to the public what was going on. He was John. That's, that's brilliant. I think that there's so much more to it. You've given us a great insight there, but I think there's a lot more to it that happens, but it's, it's exciting stuff. And John, yeah. as, as we sort of draw towards an end, 
Um, you're obviously assisting with rugby there in Canada. Is, is the love for the game growing? Are they getting more excited about rugby? Or do you think they've got to sort of match, I would say, America in terms of their abilities in Canada? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually the director of match officials for MLR Major League Rugby in North America, right, which right. includes there's, there's, there's one Canadian team at the moment and 12 American teams. And they play in a competition, which, which I believe I've, I've got full confidence that this competition is growing in the right direction, mm. that rugby in America will be, will be here to stay in the form of this competition at the elite level. And ultimately will be a platform that players can choose to, mm. to come to, to compete with the likes of, you know, pro 14 or, yes. or super rugby or whatever it is, because, you know, there's obviously, there is a little bit of ammo floating around here. And when the competition gets to a certain level, you know, they'll be able to attract TV rights and, um, you know, commercial interests that, that elevate the level of the competition. And I just want to say this as well. You know, I had a great desire to contribute to South African rugby. Mm. I made it very clear in the last three years of my active refereeing career that I wanted to stay involved, that I wanted to contribute, that I wanted to ensure that the next generation of South African referees were adequately equipped mm. to understand the culture that, that they inherited and also um, game now, game understanding and using my experience to, you know, to make them better. And once again, unfortunately, despite my overtures, there was, there was nothing available for me sure, at the sure. time. Yeah. And so it's, it's sad for me. And I think it's sad for, uh, for South African refs that they never got mm -hmm. the, the opportunity to, uh, to learn of, of what I, of what in essence I had been paid by them to, um, you know, to learn from. So it's, it, there's obviously a reason why it happened. And, you know, I, I'm not aware of it, but there's a reason why it happened. And now I've ended up here and I, I'm going full steam ahead to make sure that I make a difference over here. Yeah, well, I think South Africa's loss is, is definitely America and Canada's is gain big time. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're good at what you do. <laughs> But John, um, generally speaking, how is life in Toronto? There's no polar bears running around giving you a hard time. <laughs> yeah, it's different. But I, I you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm really, am a middle-aged guy. You know, I'm 53. I'm 54 in a month's time. Um, I've, I've got three tiny children. You know, like I've, I've got a son who's four, and I've got twin daughters who are one and a half. And it's been very challenging for me. Mm. Um, I suppose physically, emotionally, there's, there's been a lot of challenges, but. Um, in the same breath, I'm very blessed that I've had this opportunity that, you know, that I've, that I've got this opportunity work-wise yes. that I've got these three beautiful children that I live in a city, which is in essence, um, you know, pretty first world place, a very safe place to bring up kids. Yes. Um, I've got a lot to be thankful for. You know, I've had, I've had a rough ride the last couple of years. There's been a lot of challenge, you know, in my heart, I'll always be South African. I've left behind, you know, I left uh, many things behind that were um, very precious to me. And, and, you know, some of them I'll never be able to, to get back. And, yeah. and it's difficult. It's, 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 always, it's always sad from a, an expat who, who leaves. You know, when you look back over your shoulder and you go, geez, that, that will always be home or that will always be yeah. something that's familiar. And, and, that's, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not unique. I'm just basically saying what I think most people who leave you know, some people burn the ship and they go like, no, my new life is here and I'm just going to make the best and I'm not even going to think about where I came yeah. from. And others go, you know what? 
that's part of my life. That was part of my upbringing. And I, I, I think I lived a pretty idyllic, I was brought up in a pretty idyllic type of space. And, um, and I had a great life. I had a great time in South Africa. And I'd love to come back on a regular basis. It's, it's always going to be you know, a country that's very close to my heart. Yeah. Well, if you do come back, let me know. I'll definitely buy you a cup of coffee. That's the least I could do for you. So. Thank you, bud. Appreciate it. John, I really enjoyed chatting to you. Enjoyed the insight. Really good holistic picture. And I want to wish you all your ventures there in America and Canada. I think you're going to make a massive difference to the rugby there from a refereeing point of view and just from a rugby point of view as well. So good luck, John. Thank you. Really trust Thanks. you as well. Thanks. Thanks. I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Ryan. John, you're a good man, and I really yeah. appreciate your time. Like I said, I was incredibly nervous because, you know, it's no, like don't worry. the great don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm just, as you can see, I'm just a person. I, at, at, the, at that elite level, I, I suppose I operated, and there's a persona attached to it or an aura, but as a person, I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I, I like to just be almost like Farmer Brown. I'm not really that interested in putting <laughs> up a front or anything. Uh, okay, right. I've got to go to my next interview, but thanks for your time, man. Thank you. See you then. Okay. Cheers. Well. Yeah, bye. bye.